today on Ag News Daily. And then on top of that, right now we're getting in much of the Corn Belt, particularly in the western and the Great Plains area, just bombed with uh, rain. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Another Ag News Daily podcast here with Delaney Howell and Mike Pearson. Mike, it is a slower news day today, isn't it? You know, it is, which is kind of interesting because we definitely saw some movement in the markets today. We had soybeans with an incredible overnight 10-cent rally. I'll get into the why here in just a little bit. And then more interesting to me was a colossal move in feeder cattle. We saw feeder cattle just kind of trade this little range, blah, blah, blah. You know, they were up, they were down, uh, two weeks, just kind of flat. And then today it was like, holy cow, they got in a rocket ship and went to the moon. It was insane. I like your enthusiasm today. I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah, well, good. Lean Hog is also uh, kind of an exciting day. So, so there's definitely stuff to talk about market-wise, but you're right, Delaney. As far as heavy news is concerned, it's just a slow day. Everybody's, I think, just kind of hunkered down and waiting mm-hmm. for the twin triple news events this week of the blizzard coming into the Dakotas. was talking to a co-worker here at Zaner whose mom lives out in Moscow, Idaho, and she said this morning they were already getting snow. So that system is moving eastward. We've got the WASDE report coming out tomorrow, which could be a market mover. And then we have the Chinese trade negotiations kicking off tomorrow in a big way. And all of these things could move the market. So maybe ag journalists are just just in a bunker today, just hiding out until uh, we start to see one of these things materialize. We're all just waiting. And I suppose folks are finally getting into the field. I think I've heard pretty widespread farmers have been getting into the field yesterday, today, the day before. So maybe those folks are just hunkered down trying to get their harvests done as well. Right, right, yeah, or get harvest started for a lot of folks who have been dealing with adverse weather and brownout fields and soggy. Yeah, I've seen a lot of folks on Twitter who have started harvest, you know, made it a little bit, and then there's a lot of stuck combine pictures floating around on the Internet. I know. I've seen a lot of people saying, wish I had uh, track tills or (laughs) bigger tires, duels. Right. I like that you call tracks track tills. What are they called? Track tire? I don't know what they're called, honestly. Tracks. They're called tracks. Just tracks. Okay, well. Yeah, whatever. I don't know what a track till is, but I, it's I just know. a Delaneyism. That's fantastic. <laughs> I've got lots of those. You do. You do. Um, I want to circle back. Uh, I want to circle back to the 10-cent the move we had in the overnight on soybeans. Um, that was because really kind of the only major news story we had in the world of agriculture was reported by the Financial Times. And so they're uh, out of England. So this was you know about eight hours ago this was published. Um, they had a story about the upcoming trade negotiations. And following up with several people that, that you know they have connections to, they said that Vice Premier Lou He is coming to the U.S. with real offers. It's, quote, not an empty visit. The Chinese are ready to de-escalate, end quote, this trade war. So basically, according to the Financial Times, uh, Lou He is coming with a lot of real offers, and one of them is the offer to boost their purchases of soybeans. Uh, right now in 2019, they're buying about 20 million metric tons. Um, is that right? 20 million? Yeah. Yeah. And they're, they're going to move that 
they're going to add 10 million metric tons and bump it up to 30. And so that was the news that caught the attention in a thinly traded overnight market in soybeans. We rallied from um, 9.22 up to 9.31 and a half just in the final, basically from about 4 a.m. to uh, to 6 a.m. Now 8 a.m. and then uh, and then promptly sold off um, afterwards. But that's the really the only headline we have in the world of agriculture. Delaney, is this uh, China's coming? And one of the things they might be willing to throw on the table is to bump up their egg purchases. Well, that is not the only headline that we're seeing in agriculture, but maybe one of the bigger headlines we're seeing in agriculture. Great point, Delaney. Great point. What are your headlines that you're watching? Well, as we continue really trying to get USMCA pushed and passed through, Vice President Mike Pence is visiting a farm in Iowa today as well as a couple other locations across the state to discuss the benefits of it. I'm not really sure if it's more of a discuss the benefits or maybe console farmers who are upset that this hasn't been passed yet, but he is traveling the state today as well. Okay. All right. Do we know anybody where that he's visiting? I, it's a farm over near Waukee, Iowa, so I'm not sure who that would be. Oh, interesting. That's a Waukee more, farmer. Right. So, listeners outside the state of Iowa, Waukee is one of the faster-growing suburbs in the state. I think it's like Ankeny and Waukee, and um, so it's, it's rapidly urbanizing. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they've got a lot of additional pressures and maybe some advantages with the idea that their ground is, uh, you know, development ground rather than just uh, farm ground. Who knows? Uh, is, okay, so I kept reading. It says Manning Farms near Waukee, Iowa. I'm not even sure wow. who that is, but... All right, so Pence is, is running around, meeting folks, probably glad-handing and, uh, yes. you know, that would be my guess. Making, making overtures to the, uh, the ag community. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But we did, the other big headline I saw that jumped out at me today was two senators that are on the Foreign Relations Committee, which are Marco Rubio and Bob Men- Menendez of New Jersey, have written to Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, Not sure why they picked to write to him instead of perhaps Robert Lighthizer, but they are calling for an investigation of JBS. They have concerns, quite a few concerns it sounds like, that with the ongoing trade negotiations we have with China, Brazil's recent bribery scandal with the Batista brothers, as well as its ties to the Maduro regime, which I think is the regime in Venezuela that's been kind of causing chaos, and of course then China's growing reliance on that country, they are, this has raised concerns for them about the U.S.'s food security, so they're asking for a formal review of JBS by the Committee of Foreign Investment in the United States, and I'm not sure what steps they have to go through for that. Uh, obviously a formal ask from Secretary Mnuchin, but after that, I'm not sure if that has to go through the WTO or other measures have to be taken. Yeah, and that's why they wrote to uh, Secretary Mnuchin, because the Center for or the whatever foreign investment thing is falls under the Office of the Treasury. Gotcha. And my understanding is that basically we can we can do that review without any type of WTO sanctification, it's just us saying, you know, we want to look into this. Now, whether or not we can actually do anything is mm-hmm. a different 
firms, and I don't know the answer to that. So listeners, if you are an ag lawyer, if you are well-versed in how international ag law operates, we'd love to hear from you because this is an issue, and it's something that we're hearing this drum beating on the um, – on Twitter and on Facebook, the hashtag Fair Cattle Markets has been calling for an investigation into all of the packers, including JBS. And now we've got this one coming from another angle, trying to get folks to uh, to investigate JBS on a food security um, angle, which both could be uh, could be very interesting. And, and maybe this combination of factors is uh, is enough to move the needle. We'll see. We will see indeed. Right. Well, while we're talking about processing facilities, there is a lawsuit being filed by the United Food and Commercial Workers International Union and uh, their affiliate unions in Iowa, Minnesota, and Kansas. Uh, they've joined together with a nonprofit group called Public Citizen to file a lawsuit in a federal court in Minnesota, um, basically saying that the government, which is turning over um, some food safety tasks to company employees, um, and, and in turn, allowing them to speed up the, the pork plant processing lines is uh, they're saying that that's illegal. And uh, they're saying that these new rules announced by the USDA violate the Administrative Procedure Act because it is, quote, not backed by reasoned decision making. And I don't know who gets to decide what is reasoned and what isn't. And I suppose that's one of those things that the courts will be discussing here as this lawsuit probably moves forward. Yeah, I would guess that one's probably, I don't see that one getting settled outside of the court system. Well, since it's with the feds, um, I don't know that there's, there oh, that is a can. settlement. Okay. Right, right. Hmm. I think it's either, it's either this rule goes through and the, the plant lines speed up or these, the, the plaintiffs win and the, uh, the old rules come back into effect. I think those are kind of the only two outcomes unless a judge says there's no, ground here for this lawsuit and, and throws it out completely. But yeah. given that it's the unions representing the workers who will be operating the plants, I've got a feeling that, that they have the grounds to move forward. Okay. Interesting. Yes, indeed. And I've got just a piece of good news here, just kind of an update. Uh, Culver's, one of my favorite restaurants with their butter burgers, uh, about six years ago started a uh, project. It's called the Thank You Farmers Project, and their goal was to support agricultural education. And they announced um, yeah, uh, today, actually, on the 9th, that they're, over the past six years, they have raised $2.5 million to support Ag Ed, and so this goes to FFA. Uh, I guess some goes to uh, 4-H and other other ag educating groups. And um, I just thought that was pretty cool. The Joe Koss, who is the president and CEO at Culver's, said, "Quote: We're facing a turning point in agriculture, and the responsibility to feed a growing population falls on all of us, not just farmers. Our guests understand this, and that's why they've helped us to raise money every year to support the future of agriculture." End quote. I thought that was a that was a neat sentiment to hear uh, coming from a company CEO. Yeah, if Culver's ever has like plant-based burgers, I'm probably going to lose faith in humanity. Well, but at the same time, you know, if they're supporting all of ag, you know, that supports pea protein producers and soy yeah. producers. And that's true. I mean, you know, it's still agriculture, even though it's not, uh, you know, real meat or tasty. Actually, so I did talk to a vegetarian. Here is an in-the-loop mm, update okay. for our listeners. Talked to a guy who is a vegetarian, has been vegetarian for like 10 years. And um, 
you know, eats tofu, eats all kinds of that garbage. And um, he tried the Beyond Meat burger. He said he hasn't yet tried the Impossible, but he tried the Beyond Meat, and he did not care for it. Thought it was gross. Hmm. Because why? Flavor, texture, what? It was what? gross. Uh, flavor. We didn't talk about texture. We okay. talked about flavor. Because I'd kind of like to and, know about the, the texture as well. And, you know, maybe... As a vegetarian, he's not used to eating things that taste like meat. So it's maybe that's what it was. Who knows? Hmm. Okay. Well, I'm not sure I'm going to. I guess the Impossible Burger, uh, Impossible Whopper, at least at Burger King, isn't like going to break the bank to try it. But I don't know. I still feel just mad to waste money on something like that. Right. Spend a dollar more for something that's obviously not as good as the real deal. Right. I don't like Burger King to begin with, anyways. So. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. Well, we just lost a potential sponsor there, Delaney. Thanks. <laughs> Not worried. I about assume it. their marketing team was on hold here trying to get a hold of yeah, us. Now they're going to listen right. to this episode and they're they're never going to be our sponsor. Yep, you're so probably hey, right. Mickey D's. Uh Burger King's never going to be our sponsor. Why don't you give us a call? I like Chick-fil-A. Talk marketing. I'd, I'd love them or Culver's to be a sponsor, sure. Yeah, Culver's. Hey, you want to support farmers? I'm a failed farmer, and Delaney comes from a farming background. Let's uh, give us some money. <laughs> or free ice cream. I'd take, like, free ice cream or a free butter burger for a year. Oh, I would be all over that, Delaney. Do they have Culver's in Chicago? Yeah, I'm sure they do. Oh, okay. I mean, Culver's is everywhere. They're out of Wisconsin. they got to have some here. I mean, you'd think so, but I don't know. Anyway, since we're talking about um, protein and meat and all that good stuff, we, of course, know that China just wrapped up their 70th anniversary for the People's Republic of China, and they pulled about 30,000 metric tons of pork from their national reserve, that cold storage reserve that we hear so much about. But I thought this was interesting, Mike, and I'm sure you'll have a take on it, but since 2011, when we had some other serious animal infection diseases that really caused them to stockpile they said they've got about 200,000 tons in their reserve, and they just burned through about 30,000 of that just with this one event alone. So I think that's, I don't know, I think that's uh, going to be interesting to see how they react to that. Are they going to refill that 30,000 stockpile or what? Yeah, and you know, it's interesting, and I do not have the numbers in front of me, but there was an update um, earlier on domestic pork prices in China, and uh, they've hit another record. They continue to climb, and basically U.S. pork is now just about five times cheaper than buying pork domestically in wow. China. That's, uh, that's where the numbers were as of this morning, and, does, and I'll try to find them, and if I can find them, I'll post them on Twitter. So does the five times cheaper U.S. pork, does that equate to what they'd be paying in a tariff it's it's still cheaper still cheaper that's what i to pay the tariff than it is to buy chinese pork right yes yeah. exactly that's what i thought that's crazy Mm-hmm. huh absolutely nuts and we've seen the hawk market kind of react over the past couple of days delaney do you have any other news for us or should we jump into the market i'm not let's jump in all right folks let's see where we wrapped up for the 
today. In the corn market, the December contract dropped one and a half cents to three ninety four and a quarter. The March was down a penny at four oh five and a half. Soybeans, after their ten cent rally in the overnight, they did pull back, but still finished the November contract up three cents on the day at nine twenty three and a half. The January up two and three quarters to close the day at nine thirty eight even. And wheat also moved to the upside, did close well off the highs, but the December Chicago contract still over five dollars, finished up half a cent at five dollars and three quarters. The March unchanged on the day to wrap at five oh seven and three quarters. Livestock is where we really saw the activity and the action going on today. In live cattle, that October contract was up thirty cents at one oh eight forty seven fifty. December up thirty two fifty, finished the day at one eleven seventeen and a half. In feeder cattle, October contract up two forty seven fifty, finished at one forty four fifty. November contract up three dollars on the day to close at one forty four twenty five. In lean hogs, gapped open at the start of trading today and then just kind of hung out. The October contract was up $1.10 at 62.80. December up $2.75 to finish at 69.47.50. Dairy market also in the green. October contract up 11 cents at 18.71 with the November up 33 to finish at 18.78. Might be making another run that $19 mark. Now, let's jump into our conversation today, Delaney, and why don't you tell us who are we talking to? Well, as promised, I think we should play my conversation today with Dr. Scott Irwin of the University of Illinois. Well, today we are having a fantastic conversation with Scott Irwin, agricultural economic... Let me start that over. (laughs) Okay. Today, Yes, I know that it is. Well, today we are having a fantastic conversation with Scott Irwin, an agricultural economist at the University of Illinois. Dr. Irwin, thanks so much for joining today. Uh, Glad to be here. So tell me a little bit about what you're seeing right now in farm country. We had the recent announcement with the prevent plant indemnity payment. How does that change things for those folks that opted to take prevent plant this year? Well, I think the way you can put it is uh, the folks that had a choice whether to plant corn in uh, June or take the prevent plant, those that took the prevent plant are smiling all the way to the bank right now. Tell me why they're, they're smiling all the way to the bank. Well, because, you know, that was a tough choice, particularly in the Eastern Corn Belt, uh, where there's just a lot of just natural, if you like, cultural, uh, local community bias against uh, leaving ground bare. So it was a hard choice. Um, And there were a lot of factors that went into that. Uh, And one of the things that uh, prevented people from taking prevent plant here in the Eastern Corn Belt was the supposed inability to get the second MFP payment uh, if you took prevent plant. And that was the initial communication from the USDA. Uh, But that, you know, what we now know is that they have caved and uh, to the political pressure and prevent plant through this supplemental um, disaster provision uh, called WIP Plus is going to get effectively the same MFP2 payment as if you planted corn and mudded it in. In fact, it's actually better because the payment rate turns out to be about the same and you get 
all of that now, you don't have to wait. There's no uncertainty as there is with the actual MFP payment, which you've only gotten the first half. And I think there's a high probability you will end up eventually getting it. But the uh, uh, prevent plant folks are getting it all now. So just to clarify, the this prevent plant for this year, those folks that opted to grow or or didn't, excuse me, the folks that opted not to grow, that prevent plant extra money is coming from the disaster aid package that was passed in Congress. Am I understanding that correctly? That is correct. It's called the WIP Plus program. It contains not just uh, disaster payments for prevent plant acres, but of course for flooding losses, hurricane losses, et cetera. And so those folks will just automatically receive additional payments. They don't have to do anything special, or do they need to go talk to their insurance folks? Nope. It's uh, it's uh, the best of all worlds. They'll just be mailed a check. So we're seeing those folks get their checks mailed out. We're seeing the MPP or the MFP folks get their checks mailed out. But there's a lot of other things impacting farm country right now. Tell me a little bit about what you're hearing from from producers who maybe are getting into the fields or delay getting into the fields because of, again, some abnormal weather for this time of year. Well, that's right. Well, we knew that we were going to be dealing with a late maturing crop uh, because even what we consider in much of the Corn Belt as having planted in a uh, normal planting window was towards the end of that normal planting window. And then we have record amounts of corn and soybean acreage planted deep into June. And so it's a very late maturing crop. And then on top of that, right now we're getting in much of the Corn Belt, particularly in the Western and the Great Plains area, just bombed with uh, rain, so it's extremely muddy, and that's going to delay uh, harvesting and the conclusion of, of maturity. Uh, and of course, right now we're looking at a large mass of cold air dropping down from uh, Canada towards the latter part of this week, and you know that's going to be making, uh, I'm sure, producers pretty nervous if uh, their crops in the western half of the Corn Belt, and particularly the upper. Uh, western part of the Corn Belt. If those crops are not mature, uh, their maturity cycle will end this week. And if it does end this week, what does that mean for for the commodity prices? I mean, what could we expect to see as some sort of reaction to that? Well, right now it's pretty muted um, because I think it's really hard to sort out um, when a frost occurs, say around the 10th of June, excuse me, 10th of May, man, I'm really having trouble here. Uh, the 10th of October, uh, you know, that's not, you know, that's pretty close to the normal frost state in, say, the Dakotas and upper Minnesota. Uh, so, how much is it going to hurt yields? Um, you know, probably not a lot. What it probably will do, though, is really increase drying costs because you stop the dry down process of the uh, crops that are in the field. And so I'm guessing that uh, drying costs will skyrocket wherever the, you know, the maturation of the crops end this week. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think it's going to be interesting, too. You're over there in, in Illinois, and it seems like a lot of those folks maybe don't have on-farm dryer systems because they're not used to this type of a year. Is that, generally speaking, the trend that is happening in Illinois, is they don't have that stuff set up and maybe a little nervous about what they're going to do this year? Well, we do tend to probably use uh, a bit more commercial storage, but there's a lot of on-farm storage and on-farm drying capacity uh, here in Illinois. But we're going to be unusually vulnerable to um, just congestion, whether it's on the farm or commercially, uh, due to uh, for drying the crop down, depending on where we go from here. It doesn't look like the... uh, cold air is going to get this far south, so we're not going to end the growing season uh, quite yet here in uh, Illinois and the eastern Corn Belt. So we're kind of just hanging on, hoping that we can avoid that frost for a few more weeks and let this crop dry down. Of course, the wet, cooler weather doesn't help at all either. So I think this is just going to be a big issue wherever you are, and it just kind of depends on when the frosts lie, how much snow uh, you get up north, how much rain you get. But I think the dry down of, in particular, the corn crop is going to become a really big issue. Looking out even further than into the future, last year we saw kind of an unusual harvest. We saw a pretty wet spring, folks not being able to get their fall field work done, and and it delayed into really the spring season. Do you see that happening again this growing season? Well, right now we are on that trajectory. Um, You know, um, it's really wet in the uh, you know, western half of the Corn Belt, maybe kind of the northwestern half of the Corn Belt. Uh, you know, the extreme southeastern part of the Corn Belt has actually gotten very dry uh, in the last uh, 30 to 45 days. So this rain is actually, uh, this weekend is quite welcome there. Uh, so I would say this in the you know, northwestern, western half of the Corn Belt, that is a real possibility of a of a repeat, which is really depressing if you're a farmer, having to, you know, mud a lot of the corn and soybeans in and then mud it out. Uh, so uh, it's a possibility, but there's still a long ways to go. It's still, you know, uh, early October. We'll have to see, you know, if this uh, pattern digs in and keeps repeating for the whole month. If it keeps repeating the weather pattern being so active for the whole month of October, then then that kind of scenario is definitely on the table. But we have a ways to go. And even if it is bad in October, if it turns around in November, we can work our way out of it. But uh, it certainly is not a helpful weather weather pattern so far. Well, since I've got you on the call today, I've got to also ask about the new RFS announcement, the new biofuels announcement that came out from the administration mm-hmm. last week. Does this do a whole lot to help ethanol, or, or is it maybe a big sell for not a lot of win? I think it's the latter. A big uh, big sell, a lot of clapping, but the uh, substance of the agreement does, does not uh, help ethanol or biofuels in general all that much. I mean, it is a step forward. I mean, basically what the agreement, as best you can tell without the details at this point, did is it said, 
Okay, all the gallons that we're going to uh, have waived from 2016 through 18, I think we're going to waive in 2019, those are going to be lost forever. But starting in 2020, we're going to stop the process of the SREs waiving gallons. So in that sense, that's a victory, uh, that you're going to at least stop the uh, negative impacts of the small refinery exemptions in 2020. Uh, but you know, the elephant in the room is that they're just letting go all of the, my guess is uh, probably close to 6 billion gallons that will in total have been waived over 2016 through 2019 when we get the 2019 waivers next year. And those gallons are gone forever uh, based on this agreement. So it's hard for me to uh, see that as a a major victory uh, when you've got that hole in the RFS mandates, even though we're going to make some progress going forward. Does that progress going forward do much to change the amount of corn that we're using then? Well, my opinion is um, that whether it was a good or a bad agreement for biofuels in general won't have much of any impact on ethanol uh, because ethanol's demand is determined basically by how much E10 gasoline we use in the United States. And I don't think that uh, any kind of agreement would put much pressure uh, to use more ethanol. What's happened for most of the last uh, six or seven years is that the uh, residual gallon or sometimes we call it the marginal least cost gallon in the fulfilling the RFS is biodiesel. So the part of the biofuels industry that would benefit the most from a restoration of mandated gallons is biodiesel, not ethanol. So, um, you know, any of the gains that we see from this partial victory, I think will go to biodiesel instead of ethanol anyway. So I don't see any impact on the amount of corn that we're going to use from this agreement. Well, that's not fantastic news for our uh, corn producing friends, but I think it's nice to be able to shed some light and really dissect what that announcement meant. Well, I think, you know, if there is good news starting in 2020, it should incentivize uh, some greater use of biodiesel. I don't think given the way this has been um, is going to roll out, it'll be a big impact, but I think it will move the needle some on increased use of biodiesel going forward. Well, Dr. Scott Irwin of the University of Illinois, thank you so much for updating us on quite a few different things impacting agriculture right now. Oh, I uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Well, again, a big thank you there to Dr. Scott Irwin. Interesting stuff. He's always got interesting perspective and knows a lot about the future of agriculture as well as what's going on current day. Yeah, yeah, he does. Scott, uh, Dr. Irwin is an accomplished researcher, and he's not shy about stating his <laughs> point and what he thinks could be happening, which is something we celebrate here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. 
So, listeners, if you have missed any past episodes where folks have shared their perspective, you can tune in and get a hang of it by going to our website at agnewsdaily.com or by visiting us on social media. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just search for Ag News Daily, and we'll be there. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go. Let's let them go.